Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading this morning can be found on page 491 in the Church Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. That's on page 491. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Marsiah, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Barney, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, the teacher of the, and the teacher of the law, And the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still. For this is a holy day, do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra the teacher of the law to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and other leafy trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. 
From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. This is the word of the Lord. You see, the normal expectation is, is that I'm sat on the front row, but I'm really enjoying sitting at the back and, and looking on and seeing all your funny faces walking in on a Sunday morning. Can I just add to Pete's welcome, one well, welcome from the beginning, my own welcome. It really is lovely to see you, and uh, you are most welcome to be here. And uh, thank you for joining us, particularly if you are new particularly if maybe you have been part of this church family in time past, but you have crept in this morning. And uh, to see whether you wish to be part of as well, please come and be part of, of this family of God. We are sinners saved by grace, uh, but the Lord does a new work in us each and every day. So let's, uh, let's come together now. We're going to look at God's Word. We're on holy ground today. Uh, I hope you appreciate the, the significance of this chapter. It's a precious chapter, and I Pray that uh, the Lord will have something to say to you. Uh, it's certainly been speaking to me, but to also to us as a congregation. So let's pray together. Lord our God, we are conscious again that this is the Scripture. This is your Word. You caused it to be written. We pray, O Lord, as we read it, that you would grant by the Holy Spirit illumination that we might read, listen, and learn, and inwardly digest, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Reformation was a political and religious movement in Europe that began in the 1500s and lasted for about 150 years. And it's difficult to pinpoint the exact starting and ending dates for the Reformation, but we can point to one event that seems to begin the Reformation era. On the 31st of October, 1517, the small-town monk Martin Luther marched up to the castle church in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses to the door, thus lighting the flame of the Reformation. Other notable events in the history of the church include the Great Awakening of 1740 through the preaching of uh, Charles Whitfield and John Wesley. In more recent times here in the UK, we can think of the 1904 revival in Wales and the 1949 revival in the Hebrides in Scotland. Now, by any standards of measurement, this passage before us this morning is glorious. This is the kind of passage that should make our hearts warm and glow with longing that what takes place here would, in God's mercy and providence, take place again. It seems to me that Nehemiah 8 is of the order of a reformation where the centrality of the authority of Scripture is reestablished and the Word of God is made accessible to the people of God. Nothing like this had been seen for 200 years. 
Not since the days of Josiah when the the book of the law was found and read to the people of God. Not since then, 200 years in Nehemiah's past, had Israel ever known a day like this. This is a day of revival. This is a day of reformation. This is a day when God steps in. You see, you cannot explain what takes place here by the standards and measurements of people. This has nothing to do with Nehemiah. It has nothing to do with Ezra. It has nothing to do with the Levites. It has everything to do with God. God has come down. God has come down in blessing. God has poured out His Spirit upon His people. And this note was blessing rooted in prayer. And what else? Rooted in the radical generosity of God's people. Chapter 5. Now, it's been 90 years since Zerubbabel first led the captives from Babylon back to Jerusalem. It's been 70 years since the completion of the Second Temple. It's been 13 years uh, since the return of Ezra and his ministry. And there have been some bright spots uh, along the way, not least the completion uh, of the Temple being one of them. But nothing like this. Now, one Old Testament commentator said these words. These moments are the climax of the Old Testament because it's everything the Old Testament has been working up to. Of God saying in the prophets that he would not leave his people in exile, but he would save them. He would bring them back to his land. He would redeem them. Now, where's Ezra been for these past 13 years? For that matter, where's Ezra been for the last seven chapters of Nehemiah? There's no mention of him. But Nehemiah has been back now for four, possibly five months. The temple has long since been completed, and now the wall is complete. That civil engineering project that Nehemiah had been engaged in, that's now complete. And we said last week that God rebuilds the walls and the gates through Nehemiah and the temple through Ezra, but that is not really about the walls and the gates. Because from chapter 7 right through to the end of the book, we're going to see that it's actually about God growing the community. It's about building up the community of faith. See, ultimately, God loved a people, and he brought this people back from their rebellious exile. And in chapter 8, that starts with God bringing his people together around his word. And so this chapter is all about God's people gathering around the word of God. Nehemiah, as we know, he's a, he's a civil servant, he's a government official, he's a governor. And his concern was largely about this, this piece of building, this project. Ezra is a completely different character. Ezra, you see, is a scribe, he's a priest. Ezra is a Bible teacher and is a preacher and is a proclaimer of the Word of God. And it seems to me that there is a deeply significant moment occurring here. Because what's going on is the passing of the torch now. We won't really hear uh, more about Nehemiah. Nehemiah slides out of the picture. Actually, what is happening is God raises up one and pushes back another. And it's a reminder for us, isn't it, that there is only one true shepherd of the flock. I should just say, before we dig into this text, that it's not a prescriptive text for how to do Sundays and everything. It's descriptive. But we can come to this passage and learn a lot about what it means to gather around the Word of God. 
And so we're going to see three things this morning, the first of which is uh, the occasion for God's Word. Now, as a church, hasn't it been wonderful to pray together, to give ourselves wholeheartedly to a month of seeking God, spurred on by the example of Nehemiah? But I want us to notice this morning the importance and centrality of God to prayer, but also the centrality of the Word of God to the community of God. You see, it is through the written Word we discover the living Word, Jesus Christ. In fact, when we use the written Word to connect to the living Word, we receive a personal Word from God. It's why our personal commitment on Partnership Sunday began as follows. Do you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And we replied, by the grace of God, I do. And then we asked, do you give yourself in joyful obedience to following him and his word? With the help of God, I do. And in verse 2, it's the first day of the seventh month. When the people, they came from their towns and they gathered together in the square at the water gate. That's verse 1. And that is very important because the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar here was on the first day, the Feast of Trumpets. And on the tenth day, the Day of Atonement from Leviticus chapter 16. And on the fifteenth day started a seven-week-long Feast of Tabernacles that we read about at the end of the passage, verse 15 to 17, where they build and live in temporary shelters. Now, we don't have time this morning uh, to to unpack in detail these festivals, other than to say it's the people's way of reenacting their gospel story, their salvation story of their escape from Egypt and living for 40 years in temporary shelters in the wilderness. And in some sense, this was like the Jewish New Year at this time. It was very important. It was two months of celebration and rejoicing. Although you'll notice that according to verse 17, it has not been celebrated like this since the days of Joshua. This is some party. And so, it's day one. This is like a spiritual New Year's Day for this people. It's starting over. It's starting fresh. And what do you do on a spiritual New Year's Day? Well, the priests, who are like the ministers, they would open God's Word. They would preach from God's Word on the Sabbath. And we see this here. Ezra gathers the people together and they unroll the Torah, the law. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. And verse 3, he read it aloud from daybreak to noon. Now that is one long sermon, six hours. And don't worry, as I said, this text is descriptive, not prescriptive. Although I sometimes wonder in the church I grew up in if they took it literally. At times it certainly felt like a six-hour sermon. And so let's take stock here. It's the Lord's feast day. And the minister, verse 4, he gets up on a wooden pulpit, it says, that they built, and he opens the book. And in verse 6, it says that he prays for what's about to happen and says, Lord, will you bless this? And they say, Amen, Amen, meaning 
We agree. We come underneath this book, underneath the word here. We're submitting to it. And we learn at the end of verse 7, it's not just reading, but that the Levites actually go out into the crowd of thousands and explain it. In verse 8, we read, they explain it or they make it clear. Does that sound familiar? This is preaching. This is an Old Testament moment of standard basic preaching. And this is what, when the people of God were seeking to be revived and start day one again, they said, we've got to gather on the Sabbath day, on the feast day of God, and we've got to preach to God, preach God's word. And this is preaching. And we do this, don't we, as a church, morning and evening, week in, week out, here at Christ Church, and we might say, you know, why do we preach? Is it just an extra, just an add-on? And why do we center our lives, the cycle and schedule of our Christian lives around this? We don't have to leave the Old Testament to get an answer to that. One Old Testament scholar says that preaching was the cardinal characteristic of Jewish worship from the time of the Torah going forward. And when you come to the New Testament, when you come to a place like Luke chapter 4, Jesus steps into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he takes out the scroll, the, the Torah, and he enrolls it and he reads from it and he preaches. He teaches on the Sabbath day. And he is doing nothing other than obeying exactly what God commissioned for his people to do regularly all the way back to the Old Testament. And this is so important to see. The truth is, it seems that they were excited to be there. And it's not surprising. One of the greatest sources of joy for so many of us is coming to church. And the chaos of every day, do we not long for peace and quiet and reverence? And when we gather with God's people, we're transported in singing to a, to a place of worship and awe. It's a space where we come with confession, humility, and gratitude. A place where we step out of ourselves and the mundane and the ordinary to encounter our extraordinary God to recover perspective on the problems we face. You know, I'm often amazed at the clarity that washes over me about something that has been troubling me the moment I walk into church. Because ultimately, it's when I'm, I'm gathered with God's people, sitting under the written word, that the living word has a word of encouragement or challenge for me. A word calling me to forgive because I first received forgiveness in him. Or, or to reach out to someone who I detect maybe needs help. Or often just calling me to trust him. Even, like, even though like the boy's father in Mark chapter 9, all I can exclaim is, I do believe, help my unbelief. Now, just before we leave this point, did you notice in verse 13 that on the second day, the heads of all the families came together to study the Word of God? So, on day one, there is church, and then during the week, they gather in a small group to study the Bible. You know, it's my prayer 
that every single one of us would find a small group Bible study to be part of. Even if we used to have one, let me encourage us to think again whether this is the time to, to connect with a small group of people as we study God's Word. We meet together collectively on a Sunday. We meet together in our small groups to really pastor and care for one another and study God's Word. So we've looked then at the occasion for God's Word. Let's notice second the power of God's Word. What does it do? Now, you, you've almost certainly come across uh, this story. There was a, an old Methodist, and he was about to begin preaching in the open air when he announced out loud, it's alive! It's alive! On the floor in front of him uh, was his flat cap, and clearly he caught something under it. And he was uh, dancing around it and going, it's alive! It's alive! By now, he had gathered a, a huge crowd around him, and he leaned down and he picked up his flat cap, and underneath it was his Bible. We must never underestimate the power of God's Word to change a person's life, to change your life, to change my life. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 reminds us that the Word of God is living and active. And in Isaiah 55 verse 11, God says, My word shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire. Now, there's a lot of things God's word accomplishes, but I want to highlight just a few from Nehemiah chapter 8. George Whitfield, when he was asked by a man once, Can I print your sermons during the Great Awakening? He said, You'll never be able to put down the thunder and lightning on the page. And he said that because you've got to be embodied. You've got to be there. God does something in person underneath God's word that's unique. And here's what we learn from this passage. Let me highlight three things that God's word accomplishes when God's people gather in person. First, the word of God brings unity. And I want you to notice it's enthusiastic unity. They gather together in the square at the Watergate. And we notice in verse 1 it says they came together as one. It could there be translated they came together as with one mind. And all, and all together they called out, bring out the book. You see, the word of God brings uncommon, unusual unity. They're all of one mind. They all have this seal. They, they all have this focus. They all have the same determination. They gather as one with a collective desire to hear the word of God. But it's important to remember that it is not unity at any cost. It's unity under the authority of Scripture. And sometimes it requires extra effort on our part. I imagine there are some things in the Bible that we find difficult to fully understand or even affirm. You see, there is a cost to unity. It's humility. If there is to be a fuller experience of unity as a church... The cost will include humbling ourselves beneath God's entire word. Humbling ourselves long enough to listen and consider before responding. And that includes me. 
humbling ourselves, perhaps to say, I was wrong, or you were right, or even, please forgive me, or I didn't know that. Humility. See, that's the cost of unity. Is it too high a cost? See, only time will tell, particularly as we face challenges around the Church of England. So the Word of God brings unity. The Word of God also brings challenge. The second thing we see here is that the Word of God convicts. Look down there at verse 9. When Ezra reads the law, the people wept. They could not stop weeping as they listened to the words of the law. You see, they're, they're cut to the heart because they know that they have not kept the Scriptures as they should have. They've not been servants of the Word of God as God taught it. And when you come under God's Word and your heart is soft, the Word of God always exposes. See, it always comes in the power of the Spirit and cuts down to the heart to the division of bone and marrow. You cannot separate Word from Spirit. They come together. And the Word of God penetrates like a double-edged sword. It's been doing that for all of history. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, after Adam and, and Eve had sinned, God came down. And what did he do? He spoke and his words came forth. And he said, where are you? And they hid from him. Why? Because they knew they were naked. They knew that they had sinned. And when the word of God goes forth and we come underneath it, we are exposed. We are cut to the heart. The power of the Spirit often brings tears when we really consider where we are and what we are and what we have done before the law of God. One theologian puts it like this, when the Spirit blesses the preaching of God's Word, the thoughts of God triumph over all our thoughts. It overwhelms us. It turns us away from ourselves. No matter how long we've been a Christian in this life, young or more mature, when we come under the power of God's Word, it provokes confession. We are exposed. So the power of God's Word brings unity, it challenges and the Word of God also, thirdly, brings joy and strength. We see it down in verse 10. In, 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 in a sense, Ezra says, you're weeping, but don't weep. You know, this is a, this is a new day for us. It's a day to, to give thanks. And then we have this very famous line in verse 10. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I want you to think just for a moment about this line. It's a line that we know well. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And what is it saying? It's saying that God's joy is my strength. And so I have to ask, what is God's joy here? What is the thing that he's delighting in? And I want to suggest to us that in the context of this passage, surely God's joy is that he delighted to bring a rebellious, wayward, faltering people back to the land from exile. He wanted them. He wanted to save them. It's saying there, Israel, if you know that God delights in you, that is your strength. That is the ground of your strength. We may find ourselves asking this morning, does God delight in me? Really? Does God 
really love me? You know, I often wonder if the truth is we find it hard to think that God loves us like that. Henri Nouwen wrote these words. For most of my life, I have struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I have tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I have failed many times, but always tried again, even when I was close to despair. Now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, and to love me. The question is not, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not, how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not, how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking in the distance for me, trying to find me, and longing to bring me home. We've seen then the occasion of God's word. We've seen the power of God's word. I'd like us to finally note the response to God's word. How do the people here respond to God's word? And it goes without saying that it is a joyful response. Well, quickly, four things we see, and we'll close with this. How do we respond? And as I work through these four, I'm also asking, how can we respond to those words from 2 Corinthians chapter 9? Each person should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I'm just going to rattle these off, and they're right out of the passage again. First, we see in response to God's word, we have to, in verse 4, take initiative. They built a pulpit to sit under God's word. See, it's a reminder that we can't be passive in response to God's word. We have to be active. Second of four, we have to, in verse 3, also fight for attentiveness. Verse 3, you'll see there, they, they stood up for all six hours. Now, we don't do that. But they were so attentive. They took attention to God's word. And proper attentiveness for God's word is so difficult today, isn't it? Not least because of, we live in a, an age of screens. And screen time means the reduction of our ability to concentrate, to listen well. So in response then to God's word, we need to take initiative. We need to be attentive. We also need a humble posture. In the face of the word of God, in verse 6, we read, The people stood up, they lifted holy hands. They said, Amen, and they bowed down. As I said, I'm not saying that this is prescriptive, but the point is that we've got to take a posture of prayer and worship and preparation as we approach God's Word. And that's what they did here, and that's what we have been seeking to do in this month of January. And fourth, it's a bold response. Look at there back in verse 14 at the very end. They came back from the Bible study that they've been having. And in that Bible study, they've realized that they've not been keeping the Feast of the Tabernacles. And they set about immediately to rectify this. 
Verse 16, notice they go out to the country, they bring, they bring back branches, they effectively build a treehouse, and then they move the family out of the semi-detached, out into the treehouse for seven weeks. Now that is a serious and a bold response to the challenge of God's word. And this is the kind of response exemplified by Christ in response to the Father's word to go and rescue humanity. Does Jesus delight in you? In me? Let me remind you again of the length Jesus went to to find us. In the face of our sin, Jesus took the initiative. He was attentive to God's calling and humbled himself with a bold response. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we read that when he was hanging on the cross, being murdered by his creation, that there was a joy set before him. And this is what it was. He looked down the aisle of Golgotha and the great groom saw his beautiful bride. And that was the joy as he endured the shame and punishment of the cross that kept him going. The reason that he could endure on that cross is because he looked and he saw his bride. He saw you and he saw me because he delights in us. His joy and delight in whom he loved for an everlasting eternity. Do you know, my friends, if we have Christ, we have everything. Circumstances may take away everything, but if we have Christ, we can have joy. It's why we have given ourselves this month and indeed this year to seek more of Christ. For to me, to live is Christ said Paul, and to die is gain. See, if our joy is in material things, if our joy is in what's in our bank accounts, if our joy is in the luxury of our home, if our joy is in what kind of car we have, if our joy is in the job that we do, you know, if they're, what happens if they're taken away from us? Moth and rust corrupt, and thieves break in and steal, brother and sister. Can you say this morning with John Newton in that marvelous hymn of his, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Solid joys and lasting treasure. Have we grasped something of this joy? If we have, then we will want to respond to the word of God with thankful hearts. There is nothing we will hold back from the Lord. In Nehemiah chapter 5, the people of God had encountered the generosity of God. And they responded in kind with radical generosity. They keep nothing back financially, but gave generously from the heart. And what do we see? One, two, three chapters later, we see a unified people undergoing reformation, revival. 
They are knowing a unique time of blessing as a congregation because they finally got it. They finally understood it's all about a life centered and orientated on God. Now, for me, as I was concluding this sermon, I found myself thinking that Nehemiah and the people's response in chapter 5 is something like Malachi chapter 3. When you'll remember, the Lord challenges his people about their giving. And then he says this great promise. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. Amen. Well, join me for a short prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that in Christ you've met all our needs. We worship and we adore the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sacrifice that he made out of deep love for each one of us. And so, Lord, we pray for that sense of settled knowledge that you delight in each of us. Thank you for your deep-seated love and faithfulness. Thank you that you are there each and every day, leading and guiding our steps. Hear our cries of worship and praise this morning, we ask in your name. Amen.